If you're like me, you've been spending a lot of time following Russia's brutal war against Ukraine. I've also been trying to understand what's going on in the lands between, by which I mean the lands between Russia and Western Europe, lands that Vladimir Putin would like also to include in his empire, or failing that, in his sphere of influence. And this just in, as we say in the news business, the Islamic Republic of Iran, just south of what were the borders of the Soviet empire, is assisting Putin in his aggression. Curious, no? I'm Cliff May. To talk about these and related issues, I'm joined by Dr. Ivana Stradner, who serves as an advisor to FDB's Barish Center for Media Integrity, and by Dr. Emanuele Atolenge, senior fellow at FDD, and an expert at FDD's Center on Economic and Financial Power. It's good of you to join us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981, who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Well, Ivana and Emmanuel, first, let me say for you and for our listeners, this is going to be a kind of a kind of grand tour, but also a quick tour, a kind of a, if it's Tuesday, this must be Moldova tour. Uh, listeners might want to look at a map while they're listening to this podcast, but maybe not if they're driving their car. Um, and another time, we may go into depth on one or more of the lands we're going to touch on today. And if listeners write to us and make their preferences known, that will carry weight. We'd love to hear from you. I always mean to mention that, but I usually forget. All right. I'm I'm going to start with the Islamic Republic of Iran, even though I know that's not really in either of your portfolios. The White House on Monday said it believes Vladimir Putin is turning to Iran's Islamist rulers to provide him with hundreds of unmanned aerial vehicles, including weapons-capable drones, for use in the ongoing war against Ukraine. Tell me what you make of that. Emanuela, you start. It's a pleasure to be here today. Russia and Iran have been close for some time. And one of the things that they have in common, especially since the beginning of Russia's invasion, is that they are under a tough sanctions regime from Western countries. In the past, Iran used Russia for sanctions evasion, mainly in the banking sector. And since the expiry of weapons embargo against Iran, Russia has become potentially a supplier of weapons to Iran. But now Russia is in a completely opposite situation. Because of the, of the war grind on its equipment, it needs to find ways to resupply. And Iran's sanction evasion networks and logistical operations throughout the years uh, have come handy. Iran, you recall, supplied uh, weapons, uh, as well as personnel and advisors to uh, the Assad regime in Syria during the civil war. And it did so through both a land bridge, but more importantly, through an airlift that began uh, in uh, 
2015, just as the war powers in Iran were putting the finishing touches to the Iran nuclear deal, uh, better known as the JCPOA, Iran began uh, a massive airlift to, uh, to Syria, which arguably turned the tide in favor of, uh, of Assad alongside Russia's uh, air power, which was deployed in Syria uh, for the same purpose. So these two countries have had a lot of interests in common, uh, important connections. And since the beginning of Russia's invasion, what we have seen is that the cargo aircraft linked to Iran's Revolutionary Guards that Iran employed uh, at different times, mainly in Syria, has started flying dozens of times to Moscow. Um, we do not know what's on that cargo, but the recent news that Russia wants to buy and use drones from, from Iran in the Ukraine is very consistent with this airlift that really began uh, back in February. So the Iranians have already been supplying, uh, we don't know what exactly, uh, but the connection is there. And again, Iran has a very long history of running these operations. And this actually would take us to the Balkans because one of the very first um, operations that the Iranians uh, put together um, was in the early 90s to supply weapons to Bosnia during the Yugoslavia civil war. And the people who were involved uh, in that uh, complex logistical operation uh, later on um, went on to establish Mahan Airlines, a, an ostensibly commercial private airline, which was a key player later on in the Iranian airlifts to Syria. And it was Mahan Air that helped uh, revive in 2017 a defunct Iranian airline called Fars Air Keshem, which has two cargo aircraft and that has been involved in the airlift to Syria and more recently in uh, the airlift to Russia. So it's all the same players and their ability to deliver in Syria is now transferred to Russia uh, and the experience that they have began in the Balkans. Right. I want to highlight something you said so that people understand it, that um, there was a global embargo on, on Iranian arms sales. That was as a result of the fact that uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran and Iran's rulers uh, had an illicit nuclear weapons program, which they've never acknowledged they have. So there was global embargo. Under the 2015 nuclear deal that Obama concluded with our congressional authority on his own, the JCPOA, as you mentioned, under that deal, there were sunset clauses, meaning certain restrictions that would end at a certain point. And one of those was <laughs> the arms embargo. So, and once that kicked in, I think it kicked in, and tell me if I'm wrong, 2020, um, that after that, you could have the, this, this, this sort of arms trade, which is very much against the U.S. interest. Um, I think that's just an important thing to point, point out because FTD, among others, warned that these sunset clauses in, 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 a, in a Security Council resolution endorsing the JCPOA of 2015, this was going to be a huge problem before we knew it. 
And that's come to pass just as we predicted and as should have been foreseen, it seems to me, uh, by, by various people in Washington. Uh, I'll leave it at that, except Ivana Iran, and, and Emmanuel mentioned this, is indeed involved not just with Russia uh, in Syria, not just now with Russia against Ukraine. Iran is also involved more broadly in the Balkans, yes? Yes, thank you so much once again for inviting me to speak with you today uh, uh, and joining you on this uh, Eastern slash Central European tour. So speaking of uh, Iran and the Balkans, I absolutely agree with Emmanuel what he emphasized uh, back during the 90s in the role of, of Iran uh, back then, but it hasn't stopped. I've noticed a couple of very interesting things. First of all, Serbia and Iran, they had um, um, a visa-free regime um, several years ago. Um, and as you can imagine, many Iranians, they were abusing the system. So Serbia received a lot of pressure from the European Union to abandon such system and to, um, and to introduce uh, visas for Iranians. Uh, but then uh, since the invasion of uh, uh, since this February, uh, I have noticed that there has been more interactions between Iran and Serbia. For example, there are two uh, latest cooperation in the field of security. Um, so uh, one was that the uh, Iran's army command and staff university, they announced more cooperation with, uh, with Serbian military university. And the second thing that happened just a few days ago uh, that uh, the head of Iran's trade promotion organization, um, uh, they actually uh, sent a large team of people to Belgrade to introduce new trade, uh, new trade agreements. So this really tells you all you really need to know about how Russia is using its proxies uh, in the Balkans uh, to destabilize uh, the West uh, with the help of Iran as well. And, and I should say, you're from Serbia. You so you you know the country well. Yes, I was born you, there. Yes, you were born there. Okay. Um, and I'm, Serbia is one of the countries of Central or Eastern Europe of the Balkans that is leaning closest to Putin and away from the dem the democratic countries of the uh, European Union. Um, there are. Why Why has Serbia gone in that direction? I mean, Poland is very afraid of Russia, of course. Moldova is afraid of Russia. Um, although the Baltic, not Balkan countries, people say which, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania are very afraid. They're going to be pulled back into the Russian Empire and dominated and occupied. Um, but Serbia seems to think, yeah, that's okay. Is Pan... They, they see themselves. They see the, the the Putin as their their Slavic brother, and they think that a a new Slavic empire is what the world needs, and that's better than letting the damn Germans and the French and all those other uh, and the Anglo's uh, have power. Is is that the kind of the the view either within the ruling elite or within the country as a whole? Maybe you could reflect on that. Ooh. Like if you ask me this question 10 years ago, I would have given you a very different answer. I really cannot believe where Serbia is heading. Um, and, and there are several very interesting things. Like there are more than 50% of Serbs that would reject European Union membership. And in the latest poll, actually, uh, Putin is number one 
uh, a leader in the world for, for, for Serbs. And you were wondering how is that possible because Serbia is in the European Union path. It has a partnership for peace with NATO. Uh, well, uh, let's not forget that Yugoslavia was never the part of the Soviet sphere influence and Serbs really never experienced Russian uh, how it is actually to live under uh, under uh, Soviet Union and Russia. That's number one thing. Second thing why uh, I think that Serbia is heading to this direction, um, it is because exactly what you just mentioned, Slavic Brotherhood. Putin understands very well how polarized the Balkans is related to religion, regarding uh, ethnic tensions. So why not to exploit that? And uh, Russia has been investing tremendously in the Orthodox Church, you know, just like Patriot Kirill, who was slash is a KGB agent um, and uh, and someone who has a huge influence um, in in Russia uh, in terms of um, strategically using religion uh, to uh, shape the narrative. So it's the same thing with Serbia with the Serbian Orthodox Church, with the support of Moscow is doing that there. Second thing, the problem is also with the current president of Serbia, who was uh, back during the 90s, he was an advisor. Uh, uh, he was he was the minister of information during Milosevic regime. Many people forget that. And then, you know, he decided to change his uh, path to be, to get like a, the support of the West. So apparently, um, he manipulated the West, promising that he would bring Serbia towards the West, the West fall for this thing. And now he really put himself in a perfect position, completely destroying true uh, liberal opposition and only supporting far right. So basically, you do not have even an alternative there. And the third reason why we are seeing what we are seeing um, in, uh, in Serbia is because Russia has been working very, very hard and strategically. Look, I'm confident to say that both you and me, we are on the same page that this war in Ukraine has been planned for many, many years. And uh, Russia does not want to occupy Serbia, as you mentioned, but Russia is using the region to destabilize uh, the rest of the Europe. And now, how does that relate uh, to, to what I was saying? Russia has been investing in several strategic sectors. One, energy. Russia is using uh, energy as a weapon there because all countries in the Balkans, not all of them, but majority of them are dependent on Russian gas in the Orthodox Church, in sports, and most importantly, in media. And that really prompted me why I became interested in information operations and warfare, because observing what Russia is doing in this part of the world, along with other parts of Eastern Europe, really tells us how it's easy to destabilize uh, the country. Through propaganda, through indoctrination, through through managing and manipulating media in some of these countries, um, the, the the Russians absolutely do that. I've heard that in, about Serbia, Moldova, a lot of other exactly. places where people speak. Where it's sometimes in Russian language, sometimes it's not. I'm going to do a little very quick. We have some. I know we have some younger listeners. I want to make sure they understand the ge- the geopolitical history here, because because if you're younger, you might not. So you mentioned you know Yugoslavia. Uh, Yugoslavia means South Slavia, and it brought together a number of Balkan countries under Tito, who was a war, World War II hero. He was a communist, but he wasn't a Stalinist. He kind of separated Yugo communism with someone different. Um, so you have Serbia, which is orthodox, like Russia is, 
They use the Cyrillic alphabet like Russia does, but then next door is Croatia, which is Catholic and uses the same alphabet we use, somewhat different. You also have Bosnia, which is largely Muslim. So there's all that, and that's part of what causes these differences, which we sometimes call balkanization, right? Um, and so the while the Croatians, being Catholic, and are going to look are more likely to look towards Western Europe, as you suggest, the Serbians are looking towards their Slavic brothers in Russia and Putin, and thinking maybe that's the future. Now, it's also interesting that Belgrade, which is the capital of Serbia, not only is looking to Russia, but also looking to, again, the Islamic Republic of Iran. And uh, by the way, to Venezuela, Emanuele, tell us a little bit about that kind of triangulation that's going on there. Well, so that goes back to what I was uh, discussing before, the, the logistical operations that Iran uses to... Um, to spread influence, support uh, its partners and allies. Uh, um, and one of the, or perhaps the most important alliance Iran has in Latin America is with the Bolivarian regime in Venezuela. Uh, it goes back uh, <clears throat> two decades uh, by now. Um, and uh, for the better part of this, this time, uh, it was Venezuela that was offering assistance to Iran during the, um, the pre-JCPOA era. era um, Iran benefited from access to the Venezuelan banking system to evade sanctions. Uh, they created joint ventures that were not economically viable, but that served the pur purpose of money laundering. Uh, they share an ideological worldview of, of uh, you know, anti-imperialism, antagonism towards the West and the United States in particular. And so Venezuela provided uh, useful help to Iran. But now the roles are reversed because Venezuela's economy uh, in 2022, it's not what it used to be in, in 2002 when their relations uh, started to really... It's pretty much a failed state, Venezuela. It is pretty much not, a failed state. Millions of people have left because they can't, they can't, there's not enough to eat. Let's get Correct. That's a, let's, let's, it's a failed state with a huge amount of oil. I mean, this is a very important point. Venezuela, under, it's very much under the the influence of of, of the Castroites who, who still rule Cuba. It's, uh, it's, it's a... It's an awful, awful mess. Uh, it was once right. one of the richest and freest countries of Latin America. It's now one of the poorest and least free, and people yeah. are by the by the millions are leaving. And and like other failed states such as Syria, um, what happened in Venezuela is that the uh, ruling um, regime, uh, its party elite, and so on, basically used the trappings of nation state to. Um, uh, empty the state uh, of all of its resources, leaving the shell, and and moved increasingly to running, supervising criminal networks, which is why Iran finds Venezuela very useful. Venezuela needs Iran's help now to evade sanctions. It needs Iran's help to supply its economy with fuel, because despite sitting on an, amass, uh, an incredible mass of, uh, of, of oil, it's energy infrastructure because of corruption, embezzlement, and incompetence deteriorated to the point where they need to import refined products. Um, Venezuela has given Iran access to the country, has given passports to Iranian nationals, has allowed Iranians to, to enter the country, establish 
institutions, uh, they share a platform uh, and resources to run their media disinformation operation in, in Latin America and so on. And one of the things that Iran has been doing with Venezuela is it has been flying to Venezuela uh, technology, personnel, equipment, military uh, supplies. And Venezuela is paying Iran for its support uh, in a variety of ways, which include gold that is illegally mined in what is called the Orinoco Arc, uh, which is a, a you know a very fragile, beautiful ecosystem uh, in Latin America that uh, illegal mining is is destroying. So Iran is running an airlift to Venezuela. It has began in 2020. Was run initially by Mahanair, then Farsair Keshem stepped in. And when these large but old cargo aircraft, long haul, fly full of merchandise, they need to make a technical stopover on the way. Uh, and initially, they made stopovers in a variety of places. They stopped a few times in Algeria, a few times in Tunisia, a few times in West Africa. But eventually, diplomatic pressure from the West, mainly the United States, led all of these airports to shut down uh, access to Iranian aircraft. And since 2021, Belgrade has become the preferred stopover for all of these mysterious flights that bring uh, technology, equipment, and also regime personnel back and forth between Venezuela and Iran. And the question is, why is Serbia allowing Iran to use Serbian airspace and the, Ser and the principal uh, airport in Serbia in Belgrade uh, for Iran and Venezuela to run these operations. By the way, it's not just Iran. Uh, as of May, June of uh, 2022, Conviasa, the airline of Venezuela, which has recently bought four aircraft, long-haul aircraft from Iran, is flying and ferrying between Caracas, Tehran, and Moscow. And lo and behold, Belgrade is their stopover point for refueling. And before we pack our bags and go on to the next country, <clears throat> I want to just connect a few dots here. Um, there are many people who believe, I'm one of them, H.R. McMaster is one of them, um, Matt Pottinger, uh, who was a deputy national security advisor, both HR and Matt are affiliated with FDD. <clears throat> Neil Ferguson, the, the great historian, he's out at Hoover. They all have said, look, China is waging a, a new Cold War against the United States and its allies. Now, China has a very formal defense agreement with Russia, signed 20 days before the invasion of Ukraine. So the new Cold War is against China, but with Russia under Putin as very clearly the junior partner, but even more junior partners, as you're revealing now, would include, for example, Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, Venezuela, Cuba. Now, if you look at these, yes, there's that we have imperialist Russia, we have neo, I would say neo Maoist and imperialist China. Um, we have Islamist, jihadist uh, Tehran. Um, we have still paleo-communist um, Cuba, uh, Chavista communist, uh, I think it's fair to say, you correct me if I'm wrong, Emanuele, uh, Venezuela. If you look at these together as a collective, 
th this is a much more formidable list of adversaries than we had in Cold War One. And the problem is, we don't even, when I say we, I mean on a bipartisan basis, America, a lot of American leaders in both parties, conservatism, don't understand, don't see, don't recognize that a Cold War is being waged against us. And I would just say that if you don't know a war is being waged against you, you're unlikely to win that war. You're unlikely to take the steps necessary to win that war. And that's the situation we're in now, which is part of the reason I wanted to look around at this nexus, this axis between Russia and Iran and various other countries which we'll go into and China. So I wanted to make that big picture. Um, go ahead, Ivana. You wanted to comment on that? Yes. So I just wanted to add uh, to what you just emphasized and Emmanuel, the reason why Serbia can behave in the way that it behaves because there are no sanctions. Uh, the European Union has always been about all carrots but no sticks because it's much harder to impose certain sticks. And second thing, Serbia is a tiny country and people do not pay attention to all these activities. Um, so that's number one thing. I mean, what you just mentioned about China, China just a few months ago sent an anti-aircraft missile system to Serbia, FK-3. Russia, uh, uh, in 2019, they had a military exercise that put S-400 which leads to American sanctions for a military drill. Uh, Russia sent uh, other uh, uh, anti-aircraft missile system to Serbia, tanks, jets, um, and apparently the European Union is fine with that. So um, believe it or not, Russia recently just opened a new information business center from St. Petersburg. And we all know that the main uh, internet research agency is located in St. Petersburg. And when you connect the dots with what happened last year with Patrushev um, and the Minister of Interior from Serbia, when they pledged to combat together color revolution, and we already know that it has only and only to do with information operations, this tells you really all you need to know about new IT sector. And the third thing is, all those companies from Russia, in order to evade sanctions, they are moving to Serbia. So Serbia is really gaining, it has wonderful IT sector, uh, IT people. Um, so it's really growing in that field. Um, so um, again, Russia is exploiting that along with China, along in Iran. And what I just mentioned, even that cooperation, I think, with Iran has a lot to do with cybersecurity. The next country I want to uh, touch on is Belarus. Why Belarus? I'll explain. I've argued for some time, I'm not alone in this, that Putin sees himself as a, as a 21st century czar. That's the tradition he wants to reestablish. And, his, and as czar, his mission is to restore the Russian empire and expand it if he can. And when you're the czar, you're the czar of all the Russias. That's the official title going back centuries. What are the what are all the Russians mean? It means in particular Belarus, which is essentially can be translated, Ivana, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I'm white Russia, Belarus, Belarusi, right? Exactly. And then and Ukraine is also, in Putin's mind, very much part of historic Russia, Kievan Rus, where he would say that's where it came out of. So what happened? All right. So you have in Belarus, you've had the same president, the same really dictator, but he, there have been elections since the country became independent in 1994. That's Alexander Lukashenko. He's a very colorful character, Lukashenko. Um, you know, he was once the director of a Soviet collective pig farm 
interesting, you know, great background for me. He was, he has touted ice hockey, vodka, saunas, and tractor driving as remedies for COVID. And I think he might be right about the vodka, although I think single malt whiskeys work better. That's what I used to. Uh, in 2020, there was an election in Belarus, like other elections in Belarus. It was not free and fair, according to election monitors, according to the EU. Lukashenko claimed 80% of the vote went to him. Western European nations said, no, I don't think so. There have been sanctions. There were then widespread, really serious protests in Belarus, in Minsk. Putin backed Lukashenko. He bolstered Lukashenko's security forces. He helped put down the demonstrations. And after that, I think it's fair to say Belarus was clearly a vassal state of the Kremlin, very much not officially part of the Russian Empire, but de facto part of the Russian Empire. That's not the only reason by any means that Putin said, "Okay, now it's time to go into Ukraine. But I think it was a contributing factor. I have now succeeded with Belarus. Lukashenko will do what I tell him to do. What part of what's interesting, and this I don't know, maybe you, you have a theory on this or a, a prediction of a, if Putin, Putin tells Lukashenko, Lukashenko, okay, I need your troops to go into invade Ukraine and help me put down the Zelensky Nazi regime in Ukraine and take that back from Mother Russia. Does Lukashenko do that? Or does he say, no, I, that's, that's, that's a bridge too far for me? Any idea? We should not forget that Putin and Lukashenko actually uh, in 2021 agreed on 28 different union programs. And uh, last year, uh, they also approved the programs uh, basically as a new military doctrine. Um, so uh, that's number one thing. Second thing, Russia wants to uh, transfer Iskander and missile systems to Belarus. So that's something also that we should uh, pay attention to. And the reason is why exactly what you just asked. If Putin asks Lukashenko uh, to wage a war, whether he would be willing or not to do so. Um, I have my own theory about that. Uh, right now, I don't think that Lukashenko wants to uh, wage a war uh, for Russia because of internal uh, turmoil. Uh, the last thing that he wants is to have further economic sanctions and to have uh, unrest inside the country. However, one thing is what Lukashenko wants. The second thing is what Putin wants. Even uh, uh, his uh, high-level military people inside the country have warned him about potential unrest. However, I want to emphasize one more thing. We need to pay attention to what's happening right now in Lviv and uh, Belarus. And, uh, right. And, and Lviv, of course, is a... Is a- Tell who that Lviv is just really quickly. So, so it's very, very close to Poly, to the Polish border. In Ukraine, and, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's in Ukraine. And the reason why I'm concerned about this whole uh, thing about Belarus, Belarus has no experience in waging wars. And the last thing that we really want to have an experienced country waging a war close to the Polish borders. Uh, and right now, um, um, the life in, 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 in Kiev is way more relaxed. Now, I've heard from numerous people that right now in Lviv is under so much tension and people fear a lot. And there were numerous mining close to Belarus borders recently. So we do need to pay attention there because, as I stated, I do not think that uh, such a war would benefit uh, Lukashenko internally. But one thing is what he wants, something else is really what Putin wants. And they just had a meeting uh, uh, this week. Now, let me just make sure I understand, because it's a little bit news to me. In Lviv, which is very much Western Ukraine, 
close to the Polish border, but it's been far from the fighting because the fighting has been where? Mostly exactly. in the east of Ukraine, right along the Russian border. Yours and Lviv, which is a beautiful city, people have been, had been more relaxed, you say, now they're much more worried, and they're worried not so much from the Russian troops, which are far away, but from the Belarusian troops, who Putin might say, okay, you're going in after Lviv, I'm, I'm assigning you to this task, Lukashenko. That's what you're telling me. Yeah, more or less, that's something exactly what I'm saying, because certainly um, uh, Putin is an expert in distracting the West from his own goals. And he mm. this, this particular reflexive control uh, theory that is linked to the Russian military, which basically leads you to focus on one thing, what they are focusing on second thing, and you think that you are doing something to uh, that benefits you, while well, actually it's benefiting Russia. Having said that, I've noticed numerous or since February. I mean, there were so many tricks that Russia has used, including in Kiev, um, uh, that we were all paying attention to it as if Russia wanted to uh, to occupy. No, Russia does not want to occupy uh, Lviv. What Russia would love to do is to create chaos. That's the new generation of war. Mm. And this is, you know, Cliff, I cannot emphasize enough that we need to perceive uh, this sixth generation of war in the way that Russia perceives it. And, you know, to bring me back to what you were just saying, uh, we were already dis- discussing uh, things about uh, Moldova and Georgia and the Balkans. Russia does not need to occupy those countries, rolling in tanks. They have proxies there. Imagine the world to have in such a turmoil right now, Europe, in such three important frozen conflicts. Uh, yeah, I'm going to mention a couple of other lands here. Then, Emmanuel, you can come in on any of this that, that interests you. One, along the lines you just discussed, uh, Ivana, is a place that most people have never heard of called Transnistria. It's one of the weirdest places in the world. It's essentially a slice taken out of Moldova, just a long slice. And essentially, it's a little Russian colony. It's a very strange place. It's theoretically part of Moldova. The Moldovans have no control over it. It's it's essentially a Russian colony beyond Russia's borders. But there's also another Russian colony that is very much beyond the borders, but is purely a Russian colony. colony. People may not have heard of this. It's called Kaliningrad. It's the westernmost oblast or province of Russia. It's not attached to, it's not contiguous with Russia. It's sandwiched between Lithuania and Poland. It is the only ice-free port Russia has. It used to be known as Konigsberg, and it was a Prussian city for centuries, Prussian, like German. It was named, by the way, for Mikhail Kalinin, who was an old Bolshevik revolutionary. And I say old Bolshevik, that implies one who joined the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party before 1905 and was part of Lenin's inner circle. Kalinin died in 1946. He was captured by the Red Army a year earlier in 1945 from the Germans. And today it's home to the headquarters of the Baltic fleet of the Russian Navy, Navy, which sheds light on why it's so consequential for Finland and Sweden to be joining NATO because it's through Kaliningrad that the Russian, that, that Putin would push into the Nordic countries as well as the Baltics. So I, I, I just, I don't think most people know this. I find it fascinating. Either of you, just give me, show me your hand if you want to talk about either of them. Go ahead, Emmanuel. What I want to say is that, uh, of course, Kaliningrad, whose, as you mentioned, the original name is Königsberg, it's the birthplace of Immanuel Kant one of the greatest philosophers Mm. of the Western canon, the one canon that is no longer being studied in American universities. 
And I think it's important to mention this uh, because ideas matter when we look at these, at the geography of this conflict and, and all of, the, of its complexities. Königsberg, like uh, the, the, the capitals of the Baltic states, uh, like uh, the, 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 the cities uh, in Western Ukraine and Central Europe belonged for centuries to a civilization that of course wasn't democratic at the time, but that was very much part of the West. And some of the greatest ideas of the West were born um, not just in, in the UK or France uh, or Italy with the Renaissance, but they also fed from the same uh, uh, intellectual food and participated in that great uh, intellectual ferment and creation that combined is the Western canon. And so those countries and capitals and cities have that heritage that is west westward looking. When you when you cross the border into Russia, of course, St. Petersburg was built by Venetian uh, architects, but the ideas are right. not Western. And you were mentioning before, you know, once we had the Cold War, communism on one side, uh, Western freedoms on the other. Today we have this conglomerate of uh, of different authoritarian states. I think it would be useful to to uh, remember that at some point when Königsberg was still under Germany, Germany and Russia were allied. Why? Because they were totalitarians. Um, Russia is very fond of remembering the Great Patriotic War and how it fought the Nazis. But from 1939 to 1941, Russia, Soviet Union then, was an ally of Hitler. They partitioned Poland. Um, the Soviet Union exterminated or tried to exterminate the uh, Polish intelligentsia, uh, occupied uh, Eastern Poland. Um, they had, uh, you know, for years prior to that, agreements, cooperation, economic uh, exchange, and so on. And what cemented that connection, despite the fact that we, we, we think of communism and Nazism as two mortal enemies, is that they share the same totalitarian mindset and roots. And when we forward to the 21st century and we look at these apparently strange alliances, Venezuela and, and Cuba in, in Latin America, uh, Russia's Putin uh, and uh, and Iran uh, and other countries uh, that uh, we haven't mentioned today, what they have in common is a rejection of the values that were born in places like Konigsberg. They reject the Western rule-based order that puts the individual and individual rights at the center of our world view. Now, of course, within the West, there are different opinions, conservatives, liberals, centrist, uh, progressives, different policies, but the foundations of Western civilization and the Western rule-based order are antithetical to what these countries want to do. These authoritarians regime run criminal networks, uh, break the rules of the international order, uh, disregard human rights, uh, disregard the principles that uh, that emerged from World War II, that you cannot acquire land by force and aggression. They reject all of the, reject the rules of transparency of the international financial order. They reject all of this. 
That's what they have in common. They have a totalitarian mindset. They want to rule their their countries as their own personal um, uh, asset uh, for their own enrichment. They don't tolerate dissent. They don't accept the principle of the rule by the people for the people that is the foundation of Western democracy. And that's what binds them. And that is why we find countries that are at different latitudes and longitudes of the world uh, with very disparate histories and political system, but uh, in, the, in their essence, they find themselves on the same common ground. Yes, this is, this is hugely, hugely important and not nearly as understood as it should be in, at, at high levels, because what you're talking about is the, what these countries have in common. It's not their ideology. It's the desire to destroy the world order established after World War II by the U.S., which would be kind of anti-imperialist, but which would be an empire of values, which would have an international law, which would have a U.N. system. And they are, and what they want is to destroy that and make and diminish the U.S. and Western role and establish their own world order in which they would make the rules, in particular China, Chinese the China's rulers, let's not this one party state, would make the rules for the world. China is doing a lot to take over various UN and other international organizations, doing so rather successfully. And all these other countries also want to do the same. They are all most of them are kind of imperialistic. China wants to kind of take China, China rules Xinjiang. Well, of course, that's an that's an Eastern Turkic Muslim land. China wants to take over. Taiwan. It's Taiwan has never been ruled by communists, doesn't want to be, but they say it's a rogue province. Uh, we know that Khomeini in Iran, he wants to expand his power, his empire within the Middle East. He already essentially holds Lebanon as a vassal state, huge influence in Syria, to supporting the Houthis in the civil war in Yemen, has threatened Israel with uh, annihilation. This is what this is a huge thing. And to understand how this is seen, if you remember, and I think it was 2014, after Putin took over Crimea, I think it was John Kerry who said, hey, you can't just in the 21st century do something so 19th century. Well, that was exactly the point. They're saying, no, we reject your view of what a 21st century world order looks like with you as the most important power in your values. We, I do reject it, and I intend to smash it. And 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 Kerry, I think, couldn't get that and thinks, no, no, we got to talk about climate change because that's a common that's common ground for us, isn't it? And of course, it's not by any means. So this is vital stuff to understand. It's complicated stuff, but in a way, it's it's not so complicated. Maybe we should, uh, unless you want to add to that, I wanted to move on a little bit to the uh, well, the Austro-Hungarian Empire is no more. But let's talk a little bit about how Austria and Hungary are responding to the war just to their east because it's different from Serbia, but it's also different from Poland. Ivana, you want to talk a little bit about Hungary or Austria? And then I'll, uh, and I think you want to talk about Austria too. So let's start with Ivana. So I'll say a few words about uh, Hungary and uh, Orban, uh, given that um, he is a very, I would say, a populist leader and, and an opportunist who really understands his electorate and who is playing this game to his uh, advantage. Um, uh, Hungary is a very interesting country because it's a NATO member state, but it's also EU member state. Um, and uh, so far, uh, Hungary has been, and, and, and Putin, Putin and Orban 
they had a very close ties for years in terms of uh, cooperation in the energy sector, uh, but also Hungary uh, has been uh, used as a proxy for uh, numerous Putin's policies uh, in, in, the, in the region um, as well. We should not forget, speaking of, of, of uh, Hungary, uh, Hungary uh, uh, refused to... Uh, refused to support sanctions against Patriot Kirill, uh, even though we know the, the role of, of the Russian uh, Orthodox Church. Uh, and by the way, Kirill is the, is the, is the it's patriarch, a patriarch of the Russian, in Moscow. Yes, of the Russian right. Orthodox. Of Russian. And he's very close to Putin very and very close supportive to, of Very Putin. close to Putin. He has been, uh, I mean, he even called it Putin like a, a miracle of, of God. Uh, and he has made numerous statements to support Putin's action, let alone uh, to support uh, nuclear weapons, et cetera, et cetera, which is really interesting. But one thing that really is uh, quite fascinating about Hungary and how Hungary is going towards authoritarianism um, is also uh, Hungary's ties with China. So I have to tell you, Cliff, I'm very surprised how many people here in the United States support actually Orban. If we put aside... Uh, uh, his his ties with Putin. I really do not understand why would people actually support Hungary, given that he has supported five G networks that had actually uh, 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 allowed Fudan University to start its programs now in Budapest. Um, so it really poses a serious security threat to Europe and for the uh, and also for for the United States. So Hungary certainly uh, has its own game when it comes to when it comes to Russia. I um, mean, first and foremost, to maintain uh, its own what they call it. Uh, um, uh, what they call it, like a form for migrations. They are very concerned about that. But I also want to debunk that thing. Uh, while many people praise Orban for successful uh, migration policies, people don't want to stay in, in Hungary. They want to go to, to Germany. They want to go to France, not to stay in Hungary. So uh, to just to summarize things, yes, uh, Orban has very close ties with uh, Vladimir Putin. He has his own uh, domestic interests for that. Uh, and, and thirdly, uh, also uh, his ties to Vladimir Putin, but also to Xi Jinping, I think pose uh, quite serious threat to the region, to Europe, but also to the United States, given that it's a NATO member state. Those are really good points, and I'll just add, add this. I mean, there are a lot of there are a number of conservatives who are who have gotten very pro Orban, and a lot of liberals who have gotten very anti Orban. I've been a, li- a little bit more in the middle in the following way. I, I, I'm I'm concerned about a lot of things Orban's doing and has done. I also think he's a tiny state, and I know how tiny states worry about who's going to end up in power, and they don't when they they want to hedge their bets. I also I agree with you that immigrants want to go through Hungary to Germany and France and Britain because there are better <laughs> there are better benefits to get in those countries than a lot of getting Hungary. But I'm not unsympathetic to the Hungary. It's a fascinating country, as you say. I'm not unsympathetic to the mission of saying the Hungarian people need to survive, and that's not going to be easy. There are small people. A lot of Hungarians live in other countries because of the way World War II ended. So they're in Ukraine, they're in Romania, they're in Transylvania. You have maybe, I don't know, 10 million people left in Hungary, and they're trying to just 
make sure that the Hungarian people survive, and that's not an easy thing to do. But all your, but your, I, I but your criticisms are not unjustified of Orban and, and what and what he has done. They do still have elections. I don't know that they're to- totally unfree elections. There are parties to his right, more fascist, I would say, like the Jovic party. So it's, it's a little bit complicated. And by the way, Budapest is just one of the prettiest cities in the world. So it's, but there are other pretty cities I can't go to, like Istanbul these days. Um, I agree. Because, like it has yeah, yeah. like, a, uh, what I really, uh, why I think that Orban is a fascinating figure because he's been strategically working very hard to completely destroy uh, uh, the liberal opposition. So you do have elections, but you do not have powerful opposition who can actually uh, take over. So which is a new sort of, uh, I I would say, anti-democratic processes, not only in Hungary, but also that are happening in this part, in in the rest of the Central Europe as well. Io, talk a little bit about Austria. It's not quite in sync with uh, other West European countries, is it? Well, the the, the starting point is is, uh, something... uh, that probably applies to Hungary as well. And that is that history is not a foreign country. Each country that we look at has a a big historical baggage. You you mentioned uh, Hungary and its minorities. Uh, I I remember uh, visiting Hungary in in the early 90s, just after its transition from communism to democracy, and being startled in a conversation at the foreign ministry when I was told very bluntly, uh, two-thirds of our nation are outside our borders, and we need to reclaim that. Uh, in most uh, countries of, of Eastern Europe, uh, for, for tragic reasons, most of the ethnic con- conflicts, Central and Eastern Europe, most of the ethnic conflicts were resolved uh, because populations that were minorities were exterminated or, or forcibly moved. Uh, creating um, more homogeneous uh, uh, ethnic, uh, uh, a a, a much closer coincidence of the ethnos and the boundaries of the nation state. That wasn't the case with Hungarian-speaking people. And you may recall that one of the very first crises that followed the breakup of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact was tensions at the border between Romania and, and Hungary as, as early as 1989-1990, precisely for the ethnic reason. So these countries have a huge uh, historical baggage, and, and Austria is one of them. I'm sure you've both been to Vienna. Vienna looks like a town, a, a pretty town full of, of ghosts. It is an imperial town. It exudes the glory of the past, but that past is gone. Now, Austria is is a tiny fraction of what the Austro-Hungarian Empire and prior to that, the Holy Roman Empire ruled from Vienna was. Um, and also it's a country that, of course, as a result of World War II, uh, uh, became neutral and was barred from entering pretty much any international agreement and, 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 and supranational organization where Germany was for obvious historical reasons. It's also a country that took a much longer time than Germany, uh, if at all, to um, come to terms with its dark past. Uh, 
you know, from from Kurt Waldheim, who was, you know, the prime minister uh, uh, in the 70s and then became uh, UN secretary and had a Nazi past uh, to the fact that, uh, you know, pretty much until very recently, if not altogether until today, many Austrians considered themselves of having been victims uh, of the Nazis as opposed to accomplices. So there is that uh, that baggage. There is also the, the 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 long tradition started after 1945 of neutrality, where Vienna, even more so than 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 Geneva and Switzerland as a whole, was a capital of intrigue, where East and West played the Cold War in close quarters. Uh, it is the seat of many UN uh, institutions alongside Switzerland uh, uh, and so on. So. It is a country that is still grappling with its past, and because of this past, it has never fully uh, aligned itself with uh, uh, the foreign policy of the European Union. It joined only in 1995. It is obviously not a member of NATO, still because of that historical uh, uh, tradition. And because of all of these reasons and its peculiar domestic politics, um, it, it is not uh, fully aligned with Western values. And so when you take all of that into account, I think that explains uh, why Austria has been a lot more uh, ambivalent than other members of the European Union. There are, of course, economic interests as well. Pretty much uh, the whole of Europe uh, has become dependent to, you know, to a varying degree on Russian energy. And the Russians uh, have used that weapon uh, even more so than than the Soviet Union would. I mean, I I remember growing up uh, in Italy, uh, and we were buying gas from the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s, but that was never used in the way that Putin is using it now. And and so Austria is is one of these countries where that factor also weighs in. And one thing that I want to say, and this I guess brings us also back to to the Balkans and to, to the to the to the plethora of small and middle-sized countries we've mentioned in our conversation, one of the things that Russia has been doing very successfully, uh, and and in a way that it is very ideologically elastic, it is to align itself and support anyone, political party, civil society organization, NGO that can in a way so discord and undermine um, Western designs and policies. And one area where they've been very successful, and this is, by the way, something they did already very successfully in the 1980s in Germany when they, they backed the green, uh, the green movement and then sort of the anti-nuclear uh, movement back then because they did not want the deployment of Euro missiles uh, and the development of nuclear energy, um, they're doing something very similar in the Balkans uh, and elsewhere, supporting uh, environmentalist NGOs, for example, for the very simple reason that they do not want that area of Europe to become a transit point for alternative energy supplies. One of the reasons why they're so aggressive in the South Caucasus, for example, which is connected through the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline uh, uh, to the Balkans all the way to Southern Europe, it's because they do not want Europe to start managing 
to, to offset its dependence from Russian gas by going to Central Asian suppliers, Caspian suppliers, such as Azerbaijan. And so they play on all fronts. They support the extreme right. They support the environmentalist left. They, so they will support anyone, regardless of political allegiance and worldview, who can undermine the Western-based, transparent, rule-based order that puts the individual, democracy, transparency, good governance, and rules at the center of this model. Uh, let me mention a couple of things, and then in, in conclusion, we'll, we'll wrap this up. I, you talk about anything you want to, um, based on what I'm going to ask you. One is, um, it's, it is, it's interesting to observe that what you've seen in, say, Yugoslavia is Balkanization. In other words, the various peoples not getting along and wanting their own national identity, the Croatians, the Serbians, the Montenegrins, the Bosnians, Albanians want their, all want their own. And yet what Putin is saying is, no, I want a larger umbrella. I want an empire in which I'm going to bring together people who think they are different. I don't think they're different. Ukraine, there is no such thing as a Ukrainian. There are species of Russian. Now, another example of that would be I grew up, there was Czechoslovakia. We all know Czechoslovakia. But even the Czechs and the Slovaks decided, nope, we don't want to live under the same roof. So you now have Czechia or the Czech Republic and Slovakia. I don't know. You might know. Tell me if you do. How different their their approach is to, to Putin and what he is uh, attempting to do. And then you have, a, by the way, you mentioned uh, the South Caucasus, uh, Armenia, uh, for example, now, here's what's disturbing. It's been reported that Russia is building a new military base in Armenia. FTD's Brenda Schaefer notes that the base is right above the southern gas corridor. It seems that Moscow wants to be able to disrupt alternative supplies from the Caspian into Europe. Um, and um, and then you've got, anyhow, let me let me leave it there and you, and you tell me what countries we haven't touched on or what I have touched on that you want to say more about. And we'll finish up on uh, on that. Um, go ahead, Ivana, you want to add something? Yes. So um, I would like to answer your question regarding, for example, what's happening in the Balkans. Um, uh, yes, you're right that there are like different religion groups and different ethnic groups. And that's a dream come true for Putin. I was recently, I was just talking about Serbia. However, I'm way significantly more concerned what's happening right now in Bosnia, where you have Bosniaks, where you have Croats, and when you have, um, and when you have uh, Serbs over there, because um, Serbia, Republika Srpska uh, is threatening with secession. And we already know that one of the key things for Putin is to weaponize secession. It's already doing in South Ossetia, it's doing in Transnistria, and it's doing in Bosnia using absolutely the same playbook. And what you're talking about is not Serbia. It is rather something within yeah. Bosnia. It's a Serbian minority within Bosnia. Exactly. The Serbian minority is Orthodox in Bosnia, which is majority uh, Muslim. And they're saying, no, we're, gonna, we're, we're another Serbian exactly. republic. Another Serbian exactly. Republic. And Putin just recently stated, we are not leaving our friends behind. He has been supporting uh, 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 Bosnia leader Dodik, uh, their uh, night wolves. Uh, so we know when people tell me, well, Russia cannot roll on tanks there. Russia doesn't need to. 
There are so many proxies and the Balkans is filled with weapons. So uh, it's not a problem to install chaos over there, but it's not only Bosnia, you have also a problem with Kosovo uh, and the dispute between Serbia and Kosovo. And uh, Russia is using that particular uh that per- that particular country to blackmail uh, the West because it has a uh, veto in the UN Security Council, but it also has different proxy groups to trigger new conflicts. So right now what is trending in Russian social media is actually that a new conflict will be in October. And the Serbian president just announced a few days ago that actually in October, there might be, et cetera, et cetera, which is, I, I don't want to bother you with all those tiny details why he said that, et cetera, et cetera, but I'm just saying the region is full of uh, tensions. And then you have another two NATO member states, North Macedonia and Montenegro, and their protests right now, while we are talking, uh, in those two NATO member states. Uh, and Albania is also uh, um, um, uh, heading towards new protests. So Russia is really playing quite well uh, in the region, exploiting religion, ethnic, and um, uh, ethnic differences. Uh, uh, so good luck, Europe. I really hope we impose sanctions. Uh, the United Kingdom did, but I really do not understand what the European Union is doing because don't get me wrong, Cliff, I would love the United States to be more involved. But first and foremost, this is also European continent. They should also pay more attention to this part of the world. More attention, more involved, spending exactly. more money, doing more. This is The war against Ukraine is, is, after all, a European war, and it's not enough. And, I, you know, early on, Germany under uh, Olaf Scholz, who succeeded Angela Merkel, seemed like he was going to really take a whole new approach to this thing and, and show some leadership and spend some money. And and now it's not clear that he is. He's sort of backing off. Macron has we, we, there's very little good leadership in, well, in the Western world right now, I would say. Macron is, you know, keeps wanting to, yeah, wonderful to want a diplomatic solution, but Putin doesn't want a diplomatic solution at this point. Uh, Schultz of Germany is not doing enough uh, it seems to me. Boris Johnson, of course, is now a lame duck prime minister of Britain. This is, you know, Putin can say, I'm the only guy who's got any muscle here. I'm the only one who can, you know, wrestle bears. Um, and I, I just want one uh, remembrance I want to give you, and then I'm going to go to Emmanuel to kind of sum up for us. And that is, I remember going to Sarajevo years and years ago, and as part of Yugoslavia, and how wonderful Sarajevo, because there's a mosque and there's a church and there's a synagogue. And, and look how wonderful this city is. We all tolerate and we all get along. And people like to think, oh, yes, that's the trajectory of history, the arc of history towards tolerance, justice. We don't know that at any point. History zigzags. Um, and uh, and this is, again, something that uh, too many of our leaders don't understand. They see the world through rose-colored glasses. They talk about being on the right side of history, as though history has a side, has made a decision. They're anthropomorphizing in the most reckless fashion. Uh, Sarajevo became something very different uh, over time. Emmanuel, maybe uh, go ahead, go ahead, Ivan, yeah. give, give us your final thoughts. I'll ask Emmanuel yeah. for his final I, thoughts. I, firmly believe that we should employ more of a mirror imaging when we are dealing with Eastern and Central Europe. People there think in a very different way than people in the West. I would say the concept of rationality is very different. And one of the reasons 
uh, why I think many people do not understand what's going on right now in the Balkans and why would anyone wage a war, you know, given that economy is getting certainly better, Putin understands how much history is important to those people, how much, you know, ethnic tensions can actually install conflict. So um, I really urge both Schultz and Macron to start looking the Balkans and the rest of Eastern and Central Europe to their alliances, because uh, Putin certainly understands this thing better than both of them. Manuel, final thoughts from you. Well, my final thoughts are, are sort of to amplify what I said before. We are uh, at, a, at a time of history where the, the transition from the Cold War to the new, the, the new uh, order uh, uh, has, has ended. Uh, we are in a new order or a new disorder where we, we are confronting a loose alliance of authoritarian uh, and totalitarian states that are increasingly wedded to uh, organized crime and criminal ways to to run society. They're not interested in in prosperity. They're not interested in in economic development, uh, unless prosperity and economic development refers to their own pockets uh, and the pockets of those who are uh, who are uh, aligned with and allied with uh, those in power. Uh, it is a very different world, the one that they want to create. Uh, and of course, they use chaos and disorder in those areas that we haven't fully uh, managed to bring into our own sphere of uh, a rule-based order, an open uh, economy, free market, a rule of government, rule of law, uh, transparency, good governance, uh, you know, a transparent financial system uh, that works internationally and so on. And we have to acknowledge this and we have to take up the challenge, not, not just defend what we have at home, but uh, uh, resist the temptation uh, to come to terms with our adversaries, assuming that compromise, um, uh, you know, can lead to um, a modus vivendi. These are very opposite worldviews, uh, very much like uh, the Western worldview was very much the opposite of totalitarian communism and before, before it uh, of, of, of a fascist uh, worldview. Uh, we're dealing with people who have no scruples. We're dealing with leaders with vast resources uh, and we're dealing with crisis where strong men can be bought easily with money uh, and benefits. And so I think that what the West needs to understand is that, yes, there, there is a right side of history, um, but it is not uh, a foregone conclusion. We have to fight for it. Uh, we, we have, have to, to make, make history, history and make history go in that direction. The victory of democracy in the West was by no means a foregone conclusion in 1939, 1940, 1941, even 1942. Uh, and it took an enormous effort of blood and treasure uh, at the cost of tens of millions of lives to uh, bring that vision of the world uh, to victory. Now, we're not facing a war war uh, today, but the potential for conflict uh, is obvious. Um, economic disruption uh, is already with us uh, and with us to stay. Uh, 
And so I think that, once again, Western leadership with all its faults and limitations needs to own up to this reality, acknowledge that we are in for a long struggle against totalitarian authoritarian regimes, that their end goal is diametrically opposed to the worldview we believe would benefit not just us, but the world as a whole. And we need to continue to push for that uh, vision to remain dominant. Right. I think uh, I, I would, my final thoughts are these, that the United States and its allies can rise to this challenge, but the first step is to recognize the challenge and understand it. Uh, and then we can formulate the policies and strategies we need to go forward. But there are too many who are in denial about what's really going on in the world. Actually, my most recent uh, column, which people can find on the Washington Times or on the FDD.org website, talks on a how on a bipartisan basis there are those who understand what China is trying to do, is trying to lead the authoritarians of the world and, what, and the various policies it has that are not just challenging to America, but threatening to America. And on a bipartisan basis, there are those who do not. So, for example, um, Christopher Wray, who is the uh, FBI director, interesting character, he was over in Britain recently, and he was talking about what China is trying to do to us through espionage, through stealing, through other various hostile policies. And the same week he was there, you had a group of American capitalists, titans of the business industry. Hank Greenberg was, was uh, is leading them, saying there are plenty of like-minded people in China with whom we can develop strong and improved and cordial relations. And I would just say there are such like-minded people in China. None of them hold power. None of them. And the one-party state, they can't. So on that note, Ivana, thank you very much for the work you're doing. Thanks for being on the program. It is great to have a conversation with you, Emanuele. Also good to be with you. And thanks to all of you who have stayed through with this whole program. I hope you got a good tour of, uh, of the lands between Russia and the West European countries here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.